We are in Psalm chapter 10, and we are going to be covering Psalm chapter 10 tonight. While y'all are turning there, let's go before the Lord and uh, ask him to bless our study. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles tonight, Lord, we, we want to continue to give you our heart, not only in worship of music and, and, and song, Father, but also in everything that we're learning, everything that we're looking at, everything that we're taking in. As we go to your word, Father, speak to us from it. It's the only thing that has the power to change who we are at the core of our being. Lord, continue to shape us and mold us to the image of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this psalm, as we get to Psalm 10, it's the first psalm in a while without a title in the original Hebrew. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were the first two that had that, and then we had titles all throughout. This one doesn't have a title. I think it's because a lot of the ancient text included this psalm with Psalm 9. It treated Psalm 9 and 10 as one, but we are taking it, however, as a separate psalm as we find it here tonight. Like Psalm 9, this psalm is about God's justice, but there is a different focus. Psalm 9 celebrates God's justice, and Psalm 10 is the psalmist recognizing the need for God's justice. We don't like to think about that a lot, but in, in, in all actuality, we crave a judgment. We want to see things put right. We want to see things dealt with that should be dealt with. Nobody wants to see wickedness go unpunished. And the idea of praise for righteous vindication from Psalms 9 is not as pronounced as we find here. Psalm 10, what we find is it's a prayer for God's help in a time where life gets real. Because life gets real, doesn't it? Really quick. Things happen. Entire economic systems can be shut down overnight when life gets real. Our world can pause and change. For someone who goes through a traumatic or a devastating loss or um, injury or, or some traumatic event... For them, life stops, and it's paused at that moment. For everybody else, life continues on. So when life gets real, what ends up happening is we get, there, there's a sense that God is somehow absent. As we look out in the world and we see the way that it's headed right now, it, it, there, there's a sense that God is somehow absent because the world is seeping with wickedness. This overwhelming awareness of the wickedness that we find in the world and the evil and its apparent triumph, it leads the psalmist to a desperate prayer of faith for deliverance, the need for ultimate justice. When the injustice of the world and evil seems overwhelming, the only hope that we have is in God and his place on the sovereign throne that is over everything. He's the one who calls wickedness to account and gives help 
and healing to those in a position of dire helplessness. So starting in verse 1, it says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks, there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved. From generation to generation, I will be without calamity. Cursing and deceit and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. And he seizes a victim and drags him into his net. So he's oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account. But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person, until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble and you will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that the mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. Tragedy strikes throughout this world. In this life that we live in, there are evil people, there are evil things going on, there are evil things that happen to us. The hardest thing to come to grips with is when evil happens. Why? How did this happen? Why did God allow it? We had a taste of that in 2018 on August 3rd when that man entered into Walmart and killed 23 people. We see it all the time, senselessly, one by one. For some odd reason, it really strikes us when it's more than one. We have a hard time dealing, why is it when, when someone tries to do good, someone holds them down, practicing wickedness against them, oppressing them, and it seems to go unpunished. How do we come to grips with this? What do we do with this? That's what the psalmist here is talking about. There's several things that, as we go through the psalm, what we get to see. And one of the first things that I want to do is I want to free you all 
to know that you can come to God with honest protest. You can come before without sharing too much. My wife and I, we have conversations, and sometimes we have conversations with each other that we should have had with God first. We can be more honest than what other people can handle. But God can handle our honesty. We're sh- when we share what's in our heart, what's in our mind, and where we're at, it doesn't surprise God because he knows it anyway. But it gives us a place to take it that's healthy and to a place where someone can actually deal with it because they're the one in control. They're the one who, who is sovereign over everything. And so the psalmist says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. Life hits relentlessly and with much intensity and ferocity. We can point to August 18th, but we can also point to 2013 to 2018 when ISIS was running rampant on the other side of the world, we can point to many other times in which it just seems that evil is running rampant. Right now, we can look and we can see people doing evil things and seemingly getting away with it. If we're honest, there's times where the troubles of life and the wickedness surrounding us overwhelms us. In a sense of overwhelming trouble and trial, we feel at that moment, God might be absent. God, where were you when this happened? Where were you when that hit? Where were you when I called out for your help? We feel like God is hiding. Or other times, we feel that God has simply turned away from us. Many times when tragedy hits somebody, the first thing they do is they say, God's punishing me. God's angry with me. And there's two ways to respond to that. One, you can try and figure out and and confess your sin and come before him and cleanse yourself and stand clean before him. Or the other one is, when God gets mad at me, well, I'll show him. I'll just get more mad at him. I'll just turn away from him entirely. How do we handle the troubles of life without doing that? We have to come with our honest protest. We have to come before him. The fact that the, the, the wicked triumph and seem to triumph, it brings us pause and questions. Be honest with that. Many times when I find people that have walked away from faith or are struggling with faith, it's because the church doesn't allow us to be honest with our doubt. But God can handle our doubt. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's the working out of our faith. If our faith can't handle questions, then our faith really has no foundation. And so we need to bring those questions. It feels like you're far away from me, God. Why are you far away from me? Why are you hiding in times of trouble? Why does the Lord remain silent while the innocent suffer and the wicked go unchallenged? In the, in the news recently, there's been a lot of big-time Christian names of people that have deconstructed their faith, walked away from the faith. One of my favorite Christian bands is Hawk Nelson. 
The original lead singer of it, I really liked. The second lead singer that came in is the one who recently very publicly denounced his faith. And he denounced his faith saying he's grown up in church and the one thing that the church never addresses and never deals with is the existence of evil in the world. And the only thing I can think of is he didn't go to a church that taught verse by verse. Because when you teach verse by verse, you have to handle those questions. And the truth of the matter is the Bible doesn't ignore the problem of evil in the world. It identifies the evil in the world as what it is, sin. And it also identifies men and all mankind as sinful. But the Bible doesn't leave us there. The Bible also details the remedy of sin and evil in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the promised eradication of sin and evil in his second coming. That's why we wait for his second coming. That's why we cry out, even so, Lord, come quickly. Because the promise is he will deal with sin as he comes back. Many have walked away from the faith. They, 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 they point to this. We need to come to a point where we can deal with these questions honestly because the Bible does also. We're not the first ones to ask these questions. We're not the first ones to feel like this. Psalm 22.1 is also a messianic psalm. Not only was it quoted by the psalm, written down by the psalmist, but it's quoted by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Psalm 38, 21, Lord, do not abandon me, my God. Do not be far from me. And a recent passage that the Lord has been continuously bringing to my mind and speaking to me from has been Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. He comes to the Lord and he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help? and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Is this not the world that we live in? but there's nothing new under the sun. What's been done will be done again. This is a prophet of God bringing his protest to the Lord in honesty. The psalmist says, why do you hide in times of trouble? Why are you absent from the troublesome times? It seems when calamity hits God, you are gone. That word calamity can also be um, translated to drought which brings with it in the Old Testament, when you talk about a drought, that usually came about through judgment. Job 13, 24. Job had to deal with a lot of this, where he had to come before God. And he says right here, he says, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? And again, throughout the Psalms, we're going to see them dealing with the heart problems. That's why our series is Songs for Our Heart. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? The psalmist is expressing that it's, it feels like I'm being punished, Lord. It feels like I'm under judgment. C.S. Lewis wrote this quote. 
after his wife was taken. I'm sorry, that's small lettering. He says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. The concern and anxiety over what amounts to the inactivity of God. To hide in times of trouble. Times of trouble is a rare word in the Hebrew, and it's only used twice. Here and in Psalm 9.9. And it literally means a cutting off of hope for deliverance. It's the notion of distress intensifying to all-out utter despair. And Spurgeon said this, the presence of God is the joy of his people, but the absence, the suspicion of his absence is distracting beyond measure. It's not the trouble, but the hiding of our Father's face that cuts us to the quick. When we feel like God is not with us, that hurts. And so in arrogance and pride, the psalmist says, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. It just continues on and on and on. He says, let them be caught, Lord. We have to learn to walk by faith and not by feelings. We have to live according to what God has spoken through his word and not according to our circumstances, which are screaming in our ears. So we have honest protest, but we have to recognize the prevalent problem. We have to be able to speak it, to utter it. We can't ignore problems. Problems don't go away because you ignore them. So the psalmist describes this prevalent problem, this, this problem that has permeated the world since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. He says, for the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved. From generation to generation, I will be without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fills his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes the victim and drags him in his net. So he's oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God is forgotten. He hides his face and he will never see. So the psalmist here is describing the wicked people, the prevalent problem of wickedness. And what we see here, we see the thoughts of wickedness, we see the speech of wickedness, 
And we see the actions of wickedness. The thoughts of wickedness are these. I need a spell checker, a grammatical checker or something. What I want. <laughs> it's what I want. That flows from wickedness. When we seek what we want at the expense of anyone else or God. The wicked one boasts about his own cravings. Literally that word boasts is the same word that is the root word for hallelujah. It's hillel. It's praises. He praises. He shows off verbally about his own cravings, his own desires, his own inclinations. And the one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. Greedy is specifically one who seeks to gain wealth or possessions by means of violence. It can also be translated that the greedy one blesses the one who is greedy and despises or renounces the Lord. Basically, the thoughts of the wicked are this. Who cares what the Lord wants? Who cares what the Lord commands? Who cares what the Lord desires? This is what I want. If we're honest, if we don't deal with our own flesh, those desires come up real quick and we find ways to justify it. Or we say, it's okay, God will forgive me. The second thought of the wickedness, there is no God. The wicked one does not consider accountability into his scheming and planning. He's not going, well, I better account for when I have to give a reckoning. The wicked one says, there is no reckoning. I don't ever have to answer for this. He arrogantly thinks that there is no God. His thinking never factors God into any of it. Literally, this can be translated, God is in none of his thoughts. God doesn't even enter his mind. We think that that describes an atheist, right? The church has issues when we're not submitted to God. The church has a problem of atheism. Atheism isn't just, pretend, isn't just believing in no God. What it's doing is believing in whatever we want and getting whatever we want at the expense of God. We push him to the side. That's atheism. That's saying, without God, I am. And it's, at the heart of, it's in the mind of the wicked. The wicked also says, I am prosperous, therefore I must be right. If it's blessed what we're doing, it must be okay, right? That's what the wicked is saying. It says, I prosper and thrive. Therefore, I'm secure and safe in what I'm doing. Judgment is far from him because it's too enjoying to have the prosperous moment right now. And the final thought of wickedness is this. I will never be moved. I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. 
This will never fail. Look at this thing that I've worked out. <laughs> Do you know how many people... Uh, we can go through the list of all the gangsters of the early 1900s that have said, look at this empire I built. It's never going anywhere. Look at the different drug cartels that have raised up their empires that soon they seem to fizzle overnight. Look at the nations that have come and gone, the empires that have come and gone. Every single person who sat at the top of that empire said, I will never be moved. Look at this great thing I've built. I will never be shaken or made to stagger or stumble. I won't be shifted to change my position. My ways will not be changed because they bless me. He says, I will never be moved from where I am and I will be without calamity. Nothing bad will happen. Who would dare come against me? In a move against the mafia's control of Fulton Fish Market in New York City, the case was broken open when investigators discovered that the mob boss transferred $168,000 from a high-interest fund to a low-interest bank account so that he could get free bonus TVs. Why would a man who's squeezing millions in cash payoffs from the fish market bother with free TVs? That's the mind of the wicked. Greed knows no limits. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will trap you. And the psalmist moves from what the wicked think to what they speak. He says, cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth, and trouble and malice are under his tongue. Evil shows itself in verbal violence. The tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. As James says in his epistle, he says, the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body and it sets the course of life on fire and, by its, and it is itself set on fire by hell. We know that the Bible teaches naturally from the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. Now, when the, when the Bible talks about thinking and thoughts and where we make decisions at, it's always talking about the heart. That is the central place of decision-making in the life. Out of the abundance of those thoughts come our speech, and we speak forth. As Jesus said, the thoughts fill our hearts, and then our mouth speak forward from the treasure of our heart. Luke 6.45, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Here's something that I know true in my life. I like to build things. I like to work with hammers and stuff. When you work with hammers, you hit yourself. There are two responses when you hit yourself with a hammer. The godly righteous response happens when your life is filled with godly righteous things. The ungodly answer that is usually a curse word that slips out in front of the hearing ears of everybody in a 10-block radius comes from the overflow of evil in your heart. The, you know, it, it, what you hear in your music, what you watch on TV, what you put into your mind will come out through your mouth. The actions of the wicked follow naturally. A thought becomes your speech, becomes your action. The actions of the wicked 
The wicked wait in ambush. They plot, they plan, they scheme how to take advantage. They look to kill the innocents. They're always on the lookout for the next helpless, the next victim. The wicked lurk in order to pounce and take their prey. Why this prevalent evil? Why do those who desire and seek evil rise to power? Why does that happen? It, 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 it should be naturally that if you desire to be evil, you should not prosper, right? That's what throws us off in this world is we see the evil rise up. We see them jump straight up real fast and, and, and it bothers us. And so the wicked has said to himself, God has forgotten. God doesn't know what I'm doing as if God is an omniscient. He says, God hides his face. God can't see what I'm doing. As if God isn't omnipresent. But in the wicked, when he's succeeding in the wickedness that he's doing, he says, it's okay, God doesn't care anyway. That's why I'm succeeding. In the preacher's commentary, they put it this way. Denial of deity leads to a denial of humanity. How can we respect creation if we don't respect the creator? So do we throw our hands up? Do we say, that's it, I quit, I give up? For most of us, when we came to faith in God, we were at a low point in our life. We were at a broken place in our life. We were at a spot where we needed God. There was no other way that we were going to get fixed, that we were going to get saved, that anything was going to change with us. We needed the power of the eternal one. But now that we run into another problem and we feel like he's not there, like, do we just give up and go back to what we were? This is where we have to learn absolute dependence. We have to be absolutely dependent upon God. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems like he's afar off. Because what we've learned as we go through the Bible is we see where God shows up in everyone's life, where God is, is, is at work is in those hard times where it seems like he's absent. That's when he's doing his most intricate work. The psalmist comes and he says, rise up, Lord God, lift your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account. This is where we cling to God. You yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it cannot be found. So after protesting, after stating the protest in light of the prevalent problem, the psalmist moves on, and what the psalmist says is, in light of all this, God, I am absolutely dependent upon you. Nothing can fix this problem except you. And not only that, you're the one that's promised to do it. When the rubber meets the road, we have to take the promises of God and hold on to it. That's where we get to see that he is true to his word. The psalmist doesn't say, that's okay, God, I noticed that you're a little bit busy. I'll go ahead and take care of this. 
I see this uh, wickedness going on, I will go into my bat cave and I will put on my suit of armor and I will go take... No, we can't do that. We are wicked, sinful people that are saved if we are in the name of Christ, saved by his righteousness, clothed and covered in his blood. And apart from Christ, apart from God, even our greatest works of what we consider righteousness are but filthy rags before him. You cannot overcome evil with evil. You cannot defeat sin with more sin. So we can't act in flesh. We have to hold on to God. The psalmist calls on God to act because God is the only one who can act and God is the only one good enough and righteous enough and is able to execute perfect, exact justice. And so for the fourth time in about 10 psalms, we see again the psalmist saying, rise up, Lord, defeat your foes. The wicked think they're getting away with it, but the psalmist declares this. This is the faith of the psalmist that we get to see here. He says, you do see the trouble and the grief. The psalmist is admitting, I feel like you're far, but you do see God. You are there, God. You do care. That's the hardest thing for us. We have to admit that God is still there and he does care. He says, you've even taken note of it. We need to remember that God's delay for judgment is not approval of the wickedness or, the, or even an admittance that he's unable to do anything. God takes the matter of the oppressed and the helpless into his own hand. Psalm thirty-three, thirteen: the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the heart of them all. He considers all their works. God sees everyone, everything that's going on. And Psalm 68, 5 is the promise that God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. And it picks out fatherless and widows because those are the two most vulnerable classes of people in ancient Israel. Those are the most helpless they have no one to defend them because there is no father in that home. There is no man with that woman. And I'm not saying that women can't defend themselves, but in those times, the men were the protectors. In these times, the men are still the protectors. They should be. And so Psalm 146, 9, the Lord protects resident aliens. He helps the fatherless and the widow and he frustrates the way of the wicked. Now the psalmist prays something interesting, and this is what we would call an imprecatory prayer. If you're upset about something, and you're upset about the evil and the things going on against you, here's a prayer that you can pray without fear of sin. You can pray an imprecatory prayer, that the Lord would break the wickedness. He says, break the arm of the wicked, evil person. Now, this isn't literally, Lord, just, just take his arm and just snap it like a twig. It's not a prayer for violence and pain. But what he's saying, it's not relating to physically breaking the arm, but it's, it's a symbolic of take the power away from the wicked, evil person. When we feel powerless to the wicked here on earth, 
we have to remember that there is one who is more powerful over all of it. And we have to depend upon him and upon his power. One of my favorite verses to go to is Isaiah 40, verse 28. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There's no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men may stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. The Lord is our strength in those times. When we come to him in absolute assurance, when we come to him in absolute dependence upon him, not going, it's okay, Lord, I can handle it. But like literally going, Lord, I cast myself on you, whatever, ha like I'm putting my trust in you. We prevail in faith. This is how you don't lose your faith when hard times hit. You have to throw yourself on the mercy of God, trusting in his goodness. The psalmist ends this psalm. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. He says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. We see this in action when you go to the book of Acts and you see the faith of the apostles. They're beaten and thrown in prison and they're, then they're brought before the leaders and the leaders say, hey, we command you never preach the name of Christ again. And they said, whether it's right for us to listen to you or to God, you judge for yourself but we're preaching Christ. It's like Jesus said, don't fear man who only has power to destroy the body. Fear God who has power to destroy the body and cast the soul into hell. Fear the one who has the most power. And not fear like you have to be afraid of God, but fear is in reverence and, and, and be concerned with how you relate to God. He's king forever and ever. He will outlive every other empire that builds up. We look to those in charge to intervene on our behalf and to save us. How many, every four years, we look to an election going, this is the time where we get our savior. This will be the time where everything changes. Oh no, that guy got elected. Now we're all doomed. Doomed. Our hope, pinned on those people being right, and, and, and being in the place where we need them to be, when our hope and our victory has been assured and the one who has assured it is on the throne and in power right now, we have to follow the example of the psalmist. We have to come to the point where our hope is not in our circumstances, but our hope is on the one who is sovereign over circumstances. Our hope and our victory is in God 
faith that prevails is the faith that comes and says, God, you have heard. You see, when, when we say, you, you, you have heard, you will strengthen, you will listen, the psalmist isn't ordering God around. He's declaring a certainty that God cares, that God is listening, that God will give him the strength, and that God will do justice. So we have to answer that question for ourselves. Where is God when times are bad and wickedness prevails? He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. And he promises that he never will. Deuteronomy 31.6 is the first time God promises. He says, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you and he will not leave you or abandon you. You might say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. Okay, let's go to Hebrews. In Hebrews, it's more fitting to what it's talking about here because it talks about how greed causes the one to commit violence against them. And so it says, keep your life free from the love of money be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. You never have to worry whether you have enough or you have too little. God is with you and will never abandon you. Therefore, we, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Why does it seem that the wicked get away with it, though? I go to this psalm a lot. I never knew it was there until we dedicated this church building. But it's the, the psalm about the sanctuary. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, starting in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked, they are always at ease and they increase their wealth. We have to not let this get into our heart. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say those things, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Verse 17, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. The wicked, this is the best it'll ever be for them. There is coming a judgment. There will be the separation of the sheep from the goats. 
for us living here on earth right now, this is the worst it's ever going to get for us. Think of your worst day ever. It'll never get worse than that. Our best days are ahead of us in heaven. But why does God relent? Why does God allow wickedness to happen? The Apostle Peter tells us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promises, some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Lord is long-suffering because he paid a big price to buy back our redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten Son of God. And we live in that period of grace right now on this side of the cross in which God has paid that price, that priceless, precious blood of Christ so that those who would turn from their wicked ways and call upon the name of Christ would have salvation. And it's promised in the Bible that all who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. Not could be saved, not might be saved. It is a definite declaration, shall be saved. And another definite declaration is none who call upon the name of Christ shall be cast away. That's how sure it is. That's the power of our Lord, of our God. And then we look forward to the promise of Revelation 22, 12. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. Depending on which side of the cross you're on, that can either be a very scary premonition or a very wonderful promise. But make no mistake, there's coming a day where he will repay each person according to their work. I'm not saying you can work for salvation, but I am saying we have to account for the things that we've done. For God will arise, God will lift his hand, God will never forget the afflicted because he is Lord and King forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. And Father, as we consider this wonderful um, promise of your complete and total sovereignty, of your complete and total grace and mercy, Lord, we do look forward to the day that you are coming to judge, to separate and to put all things right, to put an end to sin, to conquer death once and for all. And, and, and Lord, we look forward to that day. But Father, even now, while we may suffer in this life, maybe in our suffering we could remember that we suffer because you are long-suffering, desiring that the wicked would turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord to find salvation. As we have that in our heart, Lord, as we, as we think about the suffering that we go through, Lord, remind us to share that you are long-suffering, that you are waiting, 
that your desire is for any and all to come to Christ to find salvation. The same way that you are willing to wait to be long-suffering with us when we finally came to Christ. Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you that even in our tough times, we can hold on to the promise that your word is true, that you have never left us and you never forsaken us, and that you love us, and you demonstrated that love, in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.